Over the past two years, we have raised money for charity during our 24-hour live stream in December. And we are currently preparing to do it again. This year, we're raising money for Anxiety Gaming, a charity that helps gamers and others find assistance for mental health issues, including anxiety and depression. Last year, we exceeded our goal, and we are looking to do it again. With your help, we're confident that we can do it. You can donate at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations by clicking on the link. Also, if you want to watch us play games, have fun, and join our growing community, you can come check us out at twitch.tv slash distractionsmedia. It all starts at noon Eastern on Saturday, December 2nd. Thank you. 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 Thank you for your wonderful support. Bye. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 66, The Darker Side of the Street. Over the last few episodes, and well, pretty much for quite some time, we haven't really talked about certain areas of Wales. We've had a lot of discussion about Gwyneth, a lot of discussion about Dovid, and some discussions about Powys. But even Powys is sort of becoming... Uh, isolated in these discussions. It doesn't get a lot of feedback and a lot of clarification of what's going on. But the the one area where we're really lacking is definitely in the South. Um, and we've spent a long time talking about these other bigger nations. The last time we really talked about Gwent and its surrounding area was probably during the Roman invasions when they were dealing with Silures. In fact, a lot of the conversation since then hasn't really had much to do with any of this, and we haven't really had an opportunity to give them their just dues. In part, this comes down to a lot of different things, but this is kind of one of those situations where you're left with not a lot of information, not a lot of evidence, and you're trying to pick up the pieces after the fact. But in the meantime, let's work with what we do have and let's try and give some information to these areas uh, as we try and talk about them. And we know part of the reason why we get so little of these Welsh kingdoms is because, and particularly on the southeastern side, they remain dominated by both Saxons and then eventually the English, and then finally by the Normans over a period of almost the entire 600 years after the Romans skipped town. Yet they have significance to the story of Wales, and this is my attempt to give them a little bit more light through archaeology and what history we do have of the early medieval period in Gwent. So what do we know? Well, first that the cohesion of the former Siluri territory seems to have survived the end of Roman occupation. According to archaeologists, there is evidence even as late as the end of Roman occupation that the Civitas uh, Venturium Silurium was established and that its cultural continuity continued even after the Romans arrived. They proved this through the archaeology because there was consistency in the 
patterns of settlement outside of the Roman trading posts, which featured different styles from their neighbors across the Avon, but were consistent to the pre-Roman patterns of the Iron Age. As the Romans left the territory, academics debate what happened to the smaller farmsteads at places like Caldecott. Some argue that people abandoned the area rather than continuing to live there. The reason for this may have been defensive. Certainly, there would have, that would make sense if the area government had become unstable. Others suggest that it may be more about the local economy changing or even environmental change forcing people to move. One of the examples that was used was the flooding of the Avon and the way that would influence the local area because, of course, if, if you're having constant floods, it makes it difficult to be able to stay settled because you can't grow crops in a flooded field. And that then makes it difficult on you to feed your family and carry out normal day-to-day -day activities. So moving closer to settlements, which were controlled by the Romans, would also allow them to get away from the riversides which were causing these problems. Another problem, as we mentioned previously, at the end of the Roman period is the absence of fines, pottery and coinage being the leading reasons for seeing people as having left. It may simply come down to that the locals were not using the normal evidence markers, such as these pottery and coinage. In some cases, of course, at the end of the Roman period, coinage basically goes out of existence in Wales until well into the ninth century. There isn't evidence of king's making coins even to give them to others. Uh, there also isn't an evidence of pottery at this period of time. A lot of the, the pottery either becomes very localized, they're using local clay, or, of course, as we mentioned before, it just doesn't get used. They use wineskin, like they use uh, skins, and they use other means such as uh, wooden bowls and cups. You stop using pottery at, mostly because people have forgotten how and they go back to older, more tried and true, and somewhat easier methods for making things to use on a day-to-day -day life. The other problem is with pottery, and let's be honest, is it's easily broken. So wooden things are a lot easier to fix. They're a lot easier to replace, especially if you don't necessarily have the trade knowledge or if you don't have access to it. And we do know clay still was in Britain. I mean, there's a lot of clay... Uh, artifacts found after the Roman period, but the reality of it is their, their quality and their craftsmanship was definitely changed and definitely a lot lesser than what we saw in the mass-marketed field that we had when the Romans were kicking around and, and spending tons and tons of time and effort to mass-market goods across the empire. You don't have that anymore. Britain is now alone, and even your local area might be alone perspectively. So you may not have the opportunity to make mass goods. So the need to be quality craftsmen may have gone with that. And of course, like I said, you probably lost some of those people who used to do that. And when you lose people like that, it then takes all of this down. Even as the lifestyle changed, the buildings uses also changed, but they didn't change as quickly as one might have thought. Larger buildings in places like Carleon, for example, remained in use long after the Romans left. The main building, for example, was possibly still in use well into the Norman period. The idea that these buildings remain important 
marks on the landscape must have impressed in people a sense of continuity with the past, a link to a different age, you might say. I often think about the time I went and spent a couple of weeks in a repurposed stable, which was built around 1000 AD in Aberystwyth area. The It was a waypoint at one point for pilgrims and others heading to Strata, the Strata Florida Abbey. Now, it was a house which had a family living in a very modern way. However, the two-foot-thick windowsills acted as a reminder that we're still living in a small, old, ancient building. And for a North American who's not used to that, it was fantastic. And even though it was a rudimentary building that was used for very normal purposes, it still excited me, it still delighted me, it still made me feel a sense of connection in a way that you just don't get from a building that's 50 to 60 years old. And in a way, it makes you feel a link to your ancestors. And certainly when you see these grand Roman buildings, even kicking around as they may have done at this period, you know, a thousand years on from their construction, looking rough, having bits fallen off, having some parts repurposed, having other pieces been ripped out of other buildings to the point where there's not much left of them, but still having enough remnants around that they were still usable buildings must have felt important and must have felt a significant window into your ancestral past, which would explain why they were torn down. Um, and as I say, while certainly some of these ancient buildings fell into ruin, the Roman civil and military had left. There were still buildings which served a purpose long after. One of the reasons that academics see these Roman buildings being knocked down, and what I was pointing to earlier, may simply come down to them being symbols of Welsh independence. If, as some think, these buildings were being used by Welsh monarchs in Gwent and Glywysing, and throughout even up to the middle of the medieval period in that 1066 period, it would make sense to tear down that building as a, because it becomes a symbol. It's a way to take power from the building and thus take power of the idea of independence, the idea of being separate. You have a new order here and it is here to stay. The Normans possibly saw it as a way to create the same kind of influence as their later castles did in southeast Wales, where they built these structures to symbolize both their control, but also to take control away from the local people. And to be fair, if you think about it from the standpoint of going back to my building in Aberystwyth, that link to the past that you have there, if you can show that this past is no longer linked to your future through tearing down this symbol... It makes it a whole lot easier to push your agenda, to push your ideals forward. And to be fair, it gives you a sense of control when you build these fantastic new castles that people had not really seen in Britain to this point. It also develops this sense of here's the future, here's the new, here's the fantastic. You think about buildings in major cities these days, and I know in North America this is the case, and, and probably to some extent in all of Europe as well. When a new building gets built, even if it's... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including 
Popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies also discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfasts, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. not necessarily appealing to everyone there will be some people that will think wow that's a that's an image of the new the modern the wow factor to it and for some people that's going to be a symbol in and of itself and so new norman buildings new norman churches new norman castles become important symbols of the new and both in the holy and divine and in the civil structure of society and in the military structure of society. It gives you a whole sense of we're no longer the inheritors of Rome. We are now the Normans, the inheritors of the Vikings. And this is what you now have to listen to. This is what will you will appeal to. This is your center of power, faith, and civil justice. And so all of these things influence the population, they influence the cultural perspective, they control the agenda of the culture and create new symbolism, new ancient buildings, new ideas that become important. And so that now you can look at castles like the one built in, say, Cardiff, where it's built on the foundations of the Roman forts. And you know there was a Roman fort there, but it's gone now. And now you just have this Norman castle that overlooks most of the city and stands as a symbol of Norman power and not Roman power. And so that's what you're trying to do when you do these things. That's what you're doing when you tear those things down. Because much like when the Romans got there and took these places over that were on hill forts and and roundhouses and turn them into civil structures with very square buildings and very square streets and very very purposeful structure to romanize an area it did the same sort of thing fantastic buildings of these new and strange people create a whole different aspect of 
this is the us versus them cultural debate. And this is how we become influential in this argument. So at the same time, when we look at this period, one of the things that we struggle with is there isn't a lot of historical evidence. This is kind of where I've struggled from this podcast standpoint. You can't go in and say, oh, this is what the king of Gluissing or the king of Gwent said or did. This is his family members. This is his group of people that were influential. You know, there isn't really Rodri. There isn't Mervyn. There isn't the sons of Rodri to kind of talk about. They're just, I mean, the only evidences we have are small and few. And so most historical information that we have come, especially in this period, the Book of Llandaf. They're interesting in some sense because they tell us a small about, about Glwent and Glwissing and the succeeding kingdom, but they're not a lot more than that. This is where they're dark and murky and the reasons why we are struggling to add to the story of this area. But what we can do is use archaeology to identify some of what's going on. We can identify the fact that, that the area which had been a Roman trading area had had a Roman legion base there, slowly over time lost its legion. The legion had actually left well before the end of the Roman period. And the Sivatas itself started to fall into disuse not very long after the end of the Roman period. So even as we have some continuity, we see change in the landscape. We see change in the way the culture started to work. It becomes much more pastoral. It becomes much quieter and likely becomes a lot less educated. And in the process of that happening, we lose the written documentation. We lose things like there's no memorial stones in post-Roman Gwent. They're actually non-existent until the ninth century itself. And even these crosses, which are found in St. Cadux, uh, may have been created by someone coming from a different country altogether, like from the Old North. Uh, another group of immigrants to the area at the time were the Saxons. And as the kingdoms of Mercia and Wessex spread their influence under Alfred and his successors in Wales, there is no doubt that immigration from the kingdoms in the Saxon areas came to Wales. And because of this, we have Welsh names, but we also have Saxon names in Gwent in this area that succeeds it. Uh, we have uh, the population, of course, is still relatively small, and there's relatively fertile lands here. So there would make some sense and some driving reason why people would be moving here, especially if you're looking to make you know your name for yourself or your finances, or maybe you're a, a, a church person who's been sent here to help out the local parish. Uh, we do know that the life of Cadoc, for example, was written by a gentleman who is obviously had some sort of Saxon background because his name is a Saxon name. We have evidences of other people who are in positions of power who are Saxon, at least in name, if not necessarily in origin. And all of this influence comes from this overwhelming control that the Saxons had in the area. So long before the Normans and the Marcher Lords and all that, we still had the English kingdoms influencing the Welsh ones, and especially in the southeast area. I mean, we know in the north, especially in the northeast in Powys, there were invasion after invasion after invasion, and there was constant attempts by Mercia and Northumbria to try and take control of that area, much like they did with Gwyneth. Well, the same can be said here, except for it's Mercy and Wessex who are fighting over this area and constantly trying to influence and control it. 
and at one point actually are more or less gifted control of it in exchange for Dovid falling into the hands of the sons of Rodri. The reality is, is it makes it very difficult then to, to be able to get a Welsh perspective here, simply because there isn't a large portion of society which is speaking a language that they're actually writing down. There isn't a lot of remnants of buildings, remnants of facilities here. The church is small by comparison to some of the areas. There isn't a... While monastic buildings will develop here, they develop after this period and closer to the Norman period. We don't have the same level of religious worship here that we will have in the later periods post the Norman invasion. And the reality of it is, because of all that, we lose a lot. We have stories, we have a lot of Arthinian stories that are written, which have some relationship to the area. There's talks of stories of pigs that would wander the, the world and leave remnants and evidences of why something grows well in a certain area. And these stories are wonderful. They can give us glimpses into some of it, but, but they don't give us everything we want and certainly don't give us a full and historic sense of what's going on. And we know this is a problem all through Wales at this time period. There isn't a lot of evidence, and most of the evidence we do have is written from one perspective, typically Gwyneth, sometimes from Dovid, but almost nothing from the other kingdoms. And so we're forced into this position where we can pick up bits and pieces, we can take archaeological evidence, we can talk about that, we can talk about how things returned to areas, how things grew, but to be honest, we're left with just bits and just pieces of what we want to have and what we would really like to have, which is a much fuller, much easier understood documentation of what's going on. And unfortunately, we don't get enough of that. And we'll struggle with this for quite some time. And like I said, we will have things that will that will help out. We'll have the land of Morgan, which will help us understand some things, or Maganui, Sorry, I'm probably destroying that. Um, but even that is murky, and a lot of this is murky. So when I say we're talking about the darker side of the street, we're talking from a historical standpoint. There's just not loads of evidence. We know that there's charters where kings of Gwent and in succeeding kings signed off. Uh, the king of Morgan Nui is considered to be the senior king at a meeting for Alfred's successors. And yet, we don't know a lot about him. We know that they signed off and agreed to work with Alfred. We know that they were influential with him in some ways. But we don't know more than that. We know some names of the kings. We know some of the information. But from a historical standpoint, we really don't come back to these people enough. And fundamentally, this just comes down to a lack of information. And hopefully, as we get into further periods, and we can go much further into detail, you'll get a much better understanding of what's going on in this part of Wales. And you and I will be able to talk about them with some sense of confidence over what's going on. All we can do right now is guess a lot of this and make suspicions based on archaeological evidence, which is great, and it does add to the story, but it doesn't give us a full and complete story of what's going on. But for now, we're going to have to leave that there. Thank you for listening. 
Uh, we are two weeks away from our live stream. And uh, you may have heard the uh, ad at the beginning of this episode. Um, it'll probably go out one more time for the next recording, but that'll be it. If you would like to help us out, we would really appreciate a donation. We're really, really, really wanting to get to our target. We're closing in, but we still have a long way to go. So if you can help us out, that would be brilliant. And you can do that at distractionsmedia.com forward slash donations. If you click on the donations button, that'll take you to the link, which actually gives you the ability to pay and donate that way. And it doesn't go to us. It goes to the charity, which is what I like about it. We are not the party collecting the money. It's to the charity itself. So all of that can be done with PayPal, credit card, whatever you have to hand. And thank you guys so much for listening. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.